Thank you, Kevin. Well, if we can uh, only remotely represent well what Jesus had to say, we'll be all set. That's really the question here. And I am very delighted to be back with you. Uh, our text is going to be uh, quite aggressive, actually. So uh, we won't be able to deal in great detail with the whole thing. But I want to uh, look at the whole, uh, almost the whole, of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is often considered a real enigma by people who look at it and study it, can't figure out what in the world is really going on here. Some folks have even said that it is uh, just a collection of disjointed sayings of Jesus and that sort of thing, and nothing could be farther from the truth. And we want to try and get our arms around what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. There'll be sections of it that I don't deal with basically at all or in great detail just because it would be impossible. Uh, on the screen, you'll see uh, what won't make a lot of sense to you because you don't have you know, the little book that I'm referring to there. Uh, but the good news is this. If you look at that bottom line, you can get a PDF of all of that uh, right at that particular uh, web address, wingshadowministries.org uh, forward slash Bayshore. So if you have any interest in it, I, I highly recommend you not uh, try and follow it during the classes because it's very unlikely that I'll actually be following it. That's just, that's just the nature of it. But at least it, I, I feel better for having put it there because it's what I'm supposed to say, uh, even though it might not be what I do say. So that's that, and, and this is, if you do look at it, this will make some sense to you then that you'll see that in this session, I want to cover the first section, and then you'll see what I want to try and address in the others. So hopefully some of you, for some of you that'll be helpful to uh, read afterward or ahead of time or whatever. Uh, I'd like to pray again if that's all right with you. Well, Father, thank you uh, for letting us be here. I'm so glad you've given us something to talk about, something that's real, something that's true. It's not relative, it's solid. And uh, help us mine it like precious gold. Help us figure out what's really going on and not just to float around on the surface all the time. And so that we can be deeply rooted in your love, as Paul would say, uh, and actually come to understand the height and width and depth and length of your love so that we can grow up into the fullness that you have in mind for us. Teach us. We need you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this, I just titled this session, Toward Wholeness. Toward Wholeness, and I'm going to start with a quiz. What a great way to start a class, but I want to start with a quiz that's pretty simple. little true and false quiz for you. Uh, and I think probably you'll all get these questions right. I'm not going to collect your papers in the end, okay? So the first question is, you can always tell a person is a Christian because they are full of peace and joy. Hmm. Well, I don't mean just at Bayshore, you know, next Monday. Second question. You can always tell a person is a Christian because they habitually do what is right. Oh. Why not? Yeah, wait, but why? 
I, I chose those two questions, those three particular characteristics, peace, joy, and what's right, because Paul said the kingdom is characterized by righteousness, peace, and joy. So, I mean, just doing a little logic, you know, if we wanted to put the syllogism on the screen, the logic would go like this. Um, the kingdom is characterized by righteousness and peace and joy. Many, most, almost all Christians are not characterized by righteousness, peace, and joy. Therefore, most, many, all Christians are not walking in the kingdom. They're not actually living in the kingdom, you see. And that's something we could beat ourselves up about, but that isn't what I have in mind at all, and I'm sorry if it ever comes across that way, but I'd like to walk in the kingdom. Who doesn't want righteousness, peace, and joy? Who doesn't want to have the full flourishing life of Jesus in them? Or you could go where Paul expands that a little further, okay, of course, over in Galatians 5 with the fruit of the Spirit. Really all the same thing. So there's something actually broken in uh, modern Christianity, and I think we would recognize that. And I would like to sort of get a fresh hearing for Jesus on the subject of how to walk in the kingdom, how to live in the kingdom, how to be full of righteousness, peace, and joy. Uh, I think it was Irenaeus who said, you know, the glory of God is man fully alive. See, the glory of God is man fully alive. And, and we're being... Well, can I give you a little, I want to give you a little story, just I wasn't even thinking about this, but one day I was uh, in a highly, high and holy position, uh, that is, I was lying on the couch watching television, <laughs> and uh, I was watching a program, I'm going to be very curious to know if anybody remembers this program, The Mummy Road Show. <laughs> Nobody ever remembers this, apparently that's why it's not on anymore. It's, I was the only person who watched it, I think. But it was a PBS, I think, program, and there were these two scientists who would, forensic scientists, who would go anywhere in the world where a mummy showed up that they had access to. And they would look at the mummy, they would examine it, they would take these little arthroscopic cameras and put inside of the mummy, and sometimes they could figure out what the mummy's last meal was, they could always figure out its gender, they could often figure out its socioeconomic status. Sometimes they could figure out what it died of. They could figure out what age. It was very fascinating, really, as they did their forensics and tried to figure out what was going on here, what happened, what kind of a life did they have, and then they would imagine, you know, and they'd put something on the screen about what sort of a life they had in, with actors or something like that. And uh, one day I was just lying there thinking, wouldn't that be fascinating to see a time-lapse photography of all of that, you know? To see this person as a flourishing human being and then see them die and see the mummification process begin to where they turned into this raisin of a, you know, thing. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I thought it would be fascinating to see that. <laughs> it happened, why not see it, you know? Well, here's the thing. God spoke to me, and he said to me, Reverse the film. That's what I want to do for you. I want to take you from this shriveled up raisin of a person and rehydrate you by my spirit into what I had in mind from you for you in the beginning. 
This is what Jesus is offering when he says, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it to the full or be filled or, be, or flourishing. This is what the psalmist, the great psalmist, began with Psalm 1, you know. Psalm 1, by the way, is Psalm 1 for a reason. It's the foundation for all the psalms. And it goes like this, of course. I'm going to freely translate it a little bit, if you don't mind. I can quote it in the King James, you know, sort of like we heard last night. That's the way I learned to quote things, too. So many things, that's the way I have them learned. But I'm going to translate it for you instead. Flourishing is the person who does not just follow the advice the way all, most people talk. Nor do they actively engage in the hollow practices of those people, uh, nor do they sit with scorn on the good advice of God's people. Instead, they're always focused on what God says about how to live life because they recognize that therein is the path to life. Those kind of people are the kind of people who flourish. They bear fruit in due season, their leaf does not wither, and everything they do succeeds. Now, the ungodly are not like that. They're just like chaff blown away of the wind. Now, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And I know there's some more about standing in the day of judgment and so on in there, but this is Psalm 1 for a reason. And Jesus is very connected with that. He was probably quite involved in its writing in the first place, you understand. But he's very connected with that, and he's connected with that whole theme of the Psalms, really. How does a person flourish and become the kind of person they were designed to be? Being recreated in the image of God being rehydrated by his spirit into the full flourishing life, that man fully alive, that, that the way we were designed to be, how does that happen? And Jesus has a lot to say about how that happens. And actually, his core curriculum on that subject is this text that we want to talk about. That doesn't mean it's the only place he speaks of it, but this is clearly his core curriculum. I have another question for you, another quiz for you, and uh, I only get like 10 seconds for this, but it would be a good idea to take your pens and pencils and just write down the answers to this question. It's only going to be three words. I only want three words from each of you, and uh, you're all going to get this question right, by the way. I'm very confident, just looking at you, I know you're going to get this question right, and yet lots of you will have different words. And I'm looking for adjectives or descriptors, like big, tall, small, you know, those kind of words, adjectives. But with regard to Jesus, what comes into your mind when you think about when I say Jesus? Go, you only have 10 seconds. What comes on, into your mind when I, when I say Jesus? Now, I'm, I want you to write some things down first, or at least think about it a little bit first. And then we'll ask for some of the answers. What, what are some of those characteristics of Jesus? You had one? Compassionate. Good. Savior. Savior. Good. Love. 
Holy Messiah, righteous, all-knowing, forgiving, omniscient. What's that? Okay, good. Thank you. Yeah, good. Truth. All right, great, 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 great. Omnipresent, yeah. Omnipotent too, right, Rick? As long as you're we're talking those things. Okay, good. We want to talk about some of these things, so I want to know what you're thinking. I want to, I want to tell you that um, already you're just a little out of the ordinary, which is a good thing with people. Um, I've asked that same question of now thousands of people. And only a couple of times, both, by the way, young women in their 20s, has anyone come up with this? Brilliant. Or even smart. Or even competent. Very seldom does anybody use the sort of theological words even like omniscient or wise, which we heard here today. Um, but we don't necessarily understand those things as being brilliant. I mean brilliant. Jesus Christ is the singular expert on every field of knowledge, human and otherwise. Now we say things that would help us understand that. I mean, for goodness sakes, here's the guy who's telling 100 billion trillion stars what to do. 100 billion trillion, that's like 10 to the 26th power, by the way, in case you wondered, but that's what astrophysicists estimate there are out there. Here's a guy who designed every subatomic particle in the universe. And he's holding it all together by the word of his power. This is Jesus, okay? He's the singular expert on every field of human knowledge. If the bicycle breaks, or the car breaks, or the computer breaks, or anything else breaks, and you had the option of Jesus standing with you to tell you how to fix it, you would take that option, or you don't know Jesus. Same way with brain surgery. Of course, you all know Psalm 139, but if Jesus knows every single thought every single person has ever had before they could form it as a word on his tongue, do you suppose he might know something of everything everybody knows? And what about the fact that he knew it before they ever knew it? Now, you know I'm setting you up for something. If Jesus is really that smart, why don't we take his advice? I'm, I'm just, now I'm getting serious. Really. And um, if, I, if I'm wrong about you, I'm not wrong about me. So let, you can listen in while I'm talking to me. Okay. This is where I say I'm wanting to get a fresh hearing for Jesus. Because generally speaking, we live as if Jesus is less than competent about how I should live my life, perhaps naive in many of the things he says. Oh, we would never say that to very many people. I'll just give you an example. Jesus said, it's better to give than to receive. Right? He said that? Now, how many of us actually immediately think that way when there's a choice between giving something away or getting something? 
Immediately, that's just our natural response. Oh, why would I want to get something when I could give something away? We might think he's just a little naive. But wouldn't you love to be the kind of person that automatically just said, oh, I'd much rather give something away than get something. You see, that would be freedom as a person. That would be flourishing as a person. Jesus says, let me help you become that kind of person. Not feel guilty about not being that kind of person. Become that kind of person. Jesus has no interest in condemning us at all. You know, there is no condemnation now for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. That's, that's not a question here. The question is, do we want to enroll in his class? Now, you won't enroll in the class in a class as a student or an apprentice of Jesus, nor will I unless we think he knows what he's talking about. We will not do it. You will never actually enroll in, well, you might have to for credits or something, but you will never actually pursue what, the advice of someone you don't think knows what they're talking about. And by the way, I think that's a lot of the reason that we don't more earnestly pursue the wisdom, the advice of Jesus on how to flourish as a human being. And we got to get that in our heads. Does Jesus really know? I want to, oh, by the way, nobody ever says another interesting word here. I don't think I've ever heard this word as an adjective for Jesus. Successful. Honestly, have you ever thought about Jesus? You don't have to answer this. Have you ever thought about Jesus being successful? I want to I tell you something. Jesus is the only person who's ever fully successfully navigated human existence. Really. And if he knows how to do it, and he says, I can teach you how to do it, maybe I ought to listen. Oh, by the way, something else you almost never see here is uh, joyful. You said it? Good for you. I say you almost never heard that. See, I'm glad I said you almost never heard it. Good. So someone recognizes Jesus as joyful. You could actually take all of the eight characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit, couldn't you, and use them as adjectives for Jesus. I mean, if anybody was full of the Spirit, it was Jesus. But it's funny how we don't think about those characteristics with him. Oh, we always do love. And we might even peace. And perhaps gentleness, but, you know, long-suffering and those kind of things. But we don't really make the connection right away and think, oh, I know who's like that. That's Jesus. Okay, so um, sort of like Tom said last night, now we're going to start, I think. Uh, that was uh, not what I woke up with 2 o'clock this morning, but uh, it was... So I'm, now my question is, what's my story, my spectacles, my perspective on life, or my, what's popular these days, you know, worldview, my Weltanschauung in the German. What's, what's my philosophy of life? How do I perceive life? What do I think? Everybody has one, by the way. Everybody has one. It's very important to know how we actually think life is and how it ought to be lived. Now, there are four great questions about this. I don't have time to spend a lot of time on it, but uh, almost, you, can, you can sort of wrap all the questions that have been addressed by all the sort of uh, cultural prophets from the beginning of time until now 
uh, under four categories, and the first of which is uh, what's, what's the nature of reality? Or what is being? Or, you know, if you really wanted, some of you might appreciate the fact I'm talking about ontology or metaphysics. And if not, then forget those words. It doesn't matter. What's the nature of reality? Now, by the way, I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus has an answer to all these questions. And it's he's either right or he's wrong. If he's wrong, then let's just go have a party, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15. You know, let's just live life the way we want to live it and forget everything else. But if he's right, it makes all the difference. Okay, so what's the nature of reality? The second question is, uh, who's well off? Who's the blessed person? I mean, philosophers have been addressing this question forever. Who's the person who actually flourishes? This is not a new question. This isn't only a New Testament question. This is what everybody's always been addressing. Plato addressed it. Aristotle addressed it. Epictetus addressed it. Epicurus addressed it. Seneca and the other Stoics addressed it. Uh, Paul talks about both the Epicureans and the Stoics in Acts 17. And we hopefully won't talk about that because then I'll be way off the way off the trail, but he, these are important questions you want to know. Everybody you know wants to know. How can I be fulfilled as a human being? And we all pursue lives aimed at that. Jonathan Edwards once says, there's not a human being ever been born that doesn't pursue their own happiness. How do we flourish? David had something to say about that in Psalm 1, as we said. And the second, actually, believe it or not, the third question that thinkers have always struggled with is, who's a good person? Now, I don't have time to talk about this in great detail, but do you know everybody wants to be considered a good person? I don't mean just, you know, good people. I mean everybody. When's the last time you went to a funeral and there were testimonies given and someone stood up and said, oh, she always had straight teeth? Or he always drove a picket, Mercedes, Bentley, BMW. There's a tremendous urge. I mean, how often do neighbors and relatives and stuff like that uh, say, oh, he was really a good person after somebody shoots up a McDonald's or a post office or something? And if you don't think that everybody has a compulsion to defend themselves, just try accusing someone of something sometime and see how quickly they try and say, oh, no, no, I'm a better person than that. Now, this, of course, has tremendous apologetic power. If we could just, you know, if we were talking about apologetics, what's the real nature of reality that's that's uh, born and bred in every single human being that they would have this moral sense. You know, that's, but, the, we're, but we're not talking about that. But we are talking, I want you still to keep in mind these, these four things. And the fourth one, by the way, is how do you actually become a good person? And everybody has had an opinion about that from the beginning of time until now. And Jesus stands in the stream. Now, I'm not saying he's like Plato. He's like Aristotle or Epictetus or Epicurus. He's not like them, but he's not less than them, you see. He comes with the actual truth about those questions and everything else. 
He actually comes with knowledge about these things because he created the universe and he created me. He's not speculating about these things. He knows them. He knows them. At the end of this sermon we're going to talk about, the people will say, oh my goodness, this guy gets it. He speaks as one with authority. He knows. He really knows. He designed the mess. Well, it wasn't a mess when he designed it. But he designed the whole thing. And he really knows. And he has come to help us learn uh, what those things are. So uh, all of those kind of things are those questions. So what is real? Well, I'm just very cryptically going to say what is real is God and his kingdom. God and his kingdom. That's the, that's the root uh, essence of the whole universe and beyond is God and his kingdom. That's the nature of reality. We get to thinking differently. We often live differently. Francis Schaeffer used to talk about the fact that the universe is not a closed universe, but open. Open to reordering by God and by people created in the image of God. It's not a machine. It's a kingdom. Now, there's a great difference between a machine and a kingdom. There are machine aspects to it, but you don't speak to a machine. Well, you can speak to a computer, but you don't speak to a machine so it actually does cognitive uh, things and makes a choice. It only follows its programming. A kingdom, of course, the, you know what a kingdom is? Let me just give you a definition of a kingdom. A kingdom is a realm where things happen because someone has the say over them. That's the nature of a kingdom. That's just what a kingdom is. Things happen because someone has the say over them. You all have a kingdom. There's not a human being that doesn't have a kingdom. You, there are things, oh, what happened? Did something happen? Oh, oh just tell me I need to upgrade. Sorry. I heard a sound, and that's a spooky sound, you know. <laughs> What's the nature of a kingdom? Well, the kingdom is uh, the, a realm. So if I took um, this backpack, or better yet would be a purse. Is there a purse? If I, if I picked up the purse and started rifling through it, you'd say, wait a minute. You don't have authority for that, Right? Because that's in your kingdom, not in my kingdom, right? Yeah. We all have, let's, let's call it this way, spheres of influence. Every one of us has. We have ways of getting our way. Sometimes we aren't even thinking about it, but we have ways of getting our way. And with the people who know us best, we don't even have to say anything, right? Just a... You know, or, a, or a, some other facial expression will do it, you know. Even with people that don't know us well, we can sometimes do it without a word. But we must understand that the nature of reality is that we all are influencers. We are all created in the image of God with the ability to make things happen. We make things happen. There's nobody that doesn't make things happen. This is our design, creating the image of God as co-creators with God or sub-creators with God. We're designed to make things happen. 
We live in a kingdom and not a machine. And of course, this is so obvious and so completely inconsistent with a materialistic view of the universe. But we don't have time to talk about uh, you know, that in an apologetic sense. So um, I'm just going to say the entire created order is a product of God's creative genius and his love. His, it is primarily a kingdom under his authority. It's not a machine. Now that does not mean that there aren't things that happen regularly and predictably. That's for sure true. But that's because God's telling it to do things regularly and predictably. It's not because um, it's just he wound it up and walked away. That's not the way it is. And the character of God's kingdom, then, is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, as we mentioned. All right, see, I'm trying to stay out of your way a little bit. How can I live in order to flourish, or what can I do to be truly successful as a human being? That is the next question. That really is. It's the great worldview question. Epicurus had an answer, and the Stoics had an answer. They were very different answers, but they were all looking for the same, same thing. And uh, live within the kingdom of God. This is the answer. Live within the kingdom of God as I am designed to live in loving, interactive relationship with God, other people, the created order, receiving and giving love. Now, that's a long answer, but it's really fairly short altogether, but that's it. I mean, you can recognize that that's awfully close anyway to the way we should define what it is to be a flourishing person. Well, that means becoming a different kind of person. How do you flourish? We're going to have to become a different kind of person. We have to focus on that. We must uh, realize that success as a person is a product of the person we become. Not, for example, what we accumulate, whether dollars or accolades or alphabet soup after our name or any of those kind of things. Uh, success as a human being, flourishing as a human being, is a product of the person we become. Well, Jesus would talk, for example, about trees that bear fruit, good trees that bear good fruit. You don't, you know, you don't, I, I live in orchard country. It's wonderful. I love it right now. I'm watching the apples starting to redden up and that sort of thing. It's, I love it. I just love going for a, a drive on a summer evening through the apples, and it'll just get better and better as we go along. Of course, it was really nice in the spring with the blossoms and stuff, but I've never seen any of those orchard keepers out there tying plastic fruit on a tree. <laughs> or for that matter, going to Meyer and buying fruit and tying it onto the tree. No, fruit is a product of the type of tree. You don't gather figs from thistles. And if the fruit of my life is not like, for example, Paul describes in Galatians 5, that means the tree needs some work. I need to become a different kind of tree. I, I know that I'll mention this a little bit later on, but, you know, in, in one of Jesus' most famous uh, parables, really, he's describing himself as he leaves the uh, upper room at Passover time, and uh, he's just had the Last Supper, and he's headed out uh, with his disciples, uh, obviously, toward his crucifixion uh, just uh, shortly. And he, they probably are, a lot of commentators thinking they're walking through actually a vineyard on their way out. 
And he perhaps just points and says, now I am the true vine. You are the branches. You remember that. Well, in that text in John 15, he says, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. Oh, as Irenaeus said, the glory of God is man fully alive. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. We'll talk a little more about John 15, I'm sure, as we go along, because I really can't help myself. Well, what kind of a person then? If, it, if flourishing as a human being means changing my kind of person, in other words, there would be people who would say flourishing as a human being just means uh, uh, having all the stuff you can get, uh, checking off everything on your bucket list, you know, accumulating and, you know, having people be, sit by a pool with people dropping grapes in your mouth or whatever, you know. People would, what, what are your dream, daydreams? What are your fantasies about what, how life would really be good? I can tell you one of mine. I won't tell you some of them. But I will tell you one of mine, retirement. Yeah. I think I would flourish more as a human being if I could just quit working. Flourishing as a human being is always a, pr a product of the person I become, not the circumstances around me. And we miss this a lot. And, you know, now, it, you know, it's almost like, oh, okay, I guess. Instead of, really? Maybe Jesus knows what he's talking about. That's just an example. A lot of other fantasies that we have in terms of goals, desires, aspirations, or whatever that we think would, oh, that'd be great. I mean, retirement and a new motorcycle would even be better. <laughs> and never being rained on when you're driving, that'd be even better. You know, on and on and on, all sorts of things you can imagine. All kinds of good things. 80 degrees all the time, yeah, there you go. We're talking, now we're talking. See, what, how would we really flourish as a person? Of course, Jesus would answer it, become the kind of person I am. That's what he would say. By transformation of the inner person, the heart, by accepting the sacrifice of Christ for the forgiveness of sin, and then apprenticing with Jesus, the one who has paid the price to redeem us from our sin and lead us in the right way. Actually apprenticing ourselves with him actually becoming a follower of him, that is, learning to live life like him, like any good disciple of a rabbi in those days. Um, a name, I'm just having to think about a name, Ben Carson. I mean, you know, everybody knows now who Ben Carson is. Um, I happen to have some interest in Ben because I have a cousin who, you would, I mean, we're closely related in terms of people you know. Um, Kevin knows my cousin Mark Lewis a little bit. Now his brother Greg, uh, also my uncle Ralph Lewis from Asbury Seminary, if, you, if some of you know of that institution, what have you. But anyway, his cousin Greg wrote different books uh, for and with Ben Carson, okay? Just so you, I'm just trying to make connection. I'm sorry. You know, you can scratch that. 
But anyway, Ben Carson was probably the world's foremost surgeon for uh, separating conjoined twins. Uh, and his stories are quite fascinating to read. Now, if you wanted to pursue that, you see, if one of your goals in life, a career choice in life, was to uh, become a surgeon that would uh, learn to separate conjoined twins, if that was just your life career goal, you would do a lot worse. Uh, that's not the right way of saying it. You couldn't do much better than apprenticing with Ben Carson. It's no different here with Jesus. That's the thing. He's the singular expert on how to successfully navigate human existence. He never messed up once. I mean, some of you look like you've only messed up like a couple of times. But <laughs> he never messed up once. That's pretty significant. And he said, now listen, are you actually tired, exhausted of trying to accomplish this on your own? Anybody out there weak and worn and heavy laden? Well, come unto me and learn of me. Yeah, first, learn of me. Because I know how to live a life that isn't always, as I'm borrowing another metaphor that he used to Paul, kicking against the goads. Paul, what are you doing kicking against the goads, man? This is not the way to flourish as a human being. Come, join my team. I'll show you. All right. We must be convinced Jesus is smart and not only good, really smart, and can teach us. We must believe we can become like him. That's another big thing. But I'll never be much different until I go to heaven. That is not what Jesus said. Not what he said. We have to really believe that he can teach us. And of course, with the energy of the Spirit working within us, remember, it, he's the one who works within us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure, but that's followed by, I mean, that's following this verse, now work out your salvation, you know, with fear and trembling. Jesus enlists us into an apprenticeship to actually become like him. He, we all know by now that just being saved, being sort of zapped with the Spirit initially, did not change us into the kind of people Jesus is. We all just already testified to that with a little true and false quiz. That's not how it works. It's not how he said it works. That's wonderful, of course. We couldn't possibly do it without the presence of the Spirit. But he wants to enlist us. Part of being human, an incredibly important part of being human, is that we have choice, that we have free will. Jesus did. If we're made in his image, we must have. Thankfully, he's also there to empower us. Okay, this only occurs when you apprentice with him in his kingdom. There's no other way. We can't just all of a sudden have some ecstatic experience, as wonderful as that might be. It does not change us into the kind of person Jesus is. Wonderful ecstatic experiences can be great, for example. All sorts of wonderful worship times. All that's very good and can be formative. Don't get me wrong. It can be formative. can be helpful. But, it, you know... By Monday morning, by Tuesday morning, by Wednesday morning, or maybe Wednesday night, it really doesn't create us into a different kind of tree. 
Um, I like the, I, I'm, I just got these words to remind me. Uh, one of my <coughs> favorite texts that's favorite for, you know, not because it makes me happy, but in Jeremiah is uh, this one. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Now, he said that about his people. And chaff, we already quoted that from, from Psalm 1, um, that the ungodly are like chaff, just blown away of the wind compared to a tree. I mean, we really need to fix these images in our minds sometimes because a tree planted by rivers of water that bears its fruit in due season, whose leaf does not wither and everything does prosper, sounds very, very good to me. Chaff, just blown away of the wind, doesn't sound very good to me. It's not meant to. All right, so branches. I mentioned branches on the vine. Some very interesting things from John 15. If you read the text, I'm just going to sort of collapse it. Remember, Jesus says, I'm the true vine, you're the branches, um, and my father's the vine dresser, and, and uh, so on and so forth. Remember, one of the things Jesus says about uh, himself and the branches is, abide in the vine. Stay there. Abide there. And then he says, now here's what I mean by that. I mean, abide in my love. I, I, it, over the weekend, I taught a pastoral staff a, a retreat on intimacy with the Father. And so I'm, I'm so very tempted to just go there and talk about abiding in the love of God, uh, but I can't. But it's so important to abide in his love. To, uh, one of my professors years ago said, the hardest thing for any human being to do is to receive the love of God really receive it. Jesus says, abide in the vine. Now, I mean, abide in my love. And then what's he say? He says, here's how you will abide in my love. Anybody know? You will abide in my love if you keep my commandments. What? You mean you're not going to love me unless I keep your commandments? That's not what he said. No, he said, you won't be able to receive my love. You won't be abiding in it. You won't be doing your end of abiding in the vine without keeping my commandments. That relationship. It's, not, it's like the prodigal son. Dad was always loving his son. His son wasn't receiving it. See, He had to come home for that. He had to come home for it. Anyway, um, so houses. At the end of this sermon, we haven't started it yet, but at the end, <laughs> the Sermon on the Mount, this talk on the hill. Oh, you know the song. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. And the rains came tumbling down. The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up and the house upon the rock stood firm. Okay, we don't have time to sing the foolish man part. It is a lot of fun though, isn't it? It's a lot more fun when it falls flat. So this is a story 
This is a story that Jesus told. Right? It's a parable that Jesus told. Am I right about that? Yes, I am. Do you remember what he was illustrating? Oh, sure need a firm foundation, don't you? Yes, you do. Yeah, wise man and a foolish man, good. In fact, he was looking out at this crew of people sitting on the hillside that he was talking to, and he said this. There are really basically two kinds of people here. Two kinds of people. And he said, some of you are like a wise man who digs deep and lays his foundation on a rock, and some of you are like foolish people who just don't go through all of that bother and sort of just spontaneously live life and start building without a foundation. And almost everybody thinks he's talking about becoming saved. I, yeah, in 1975, when I was three, I taught, vac <laughs> I taught vacation Bible schools, a real child prodigy. <laughs> and uh, this was one of the stories. And I remember distinctly teaching it basically like, um, this is, you know, you need, to be, you need to be saved. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ, as Paul would say. And what this means is you need to be saved or your house is going to fall flat. But that's not actually what Jesus was saying. I mean, I don't have to tell you. I mean, I don't have to speculate about this. Jesus said, what I'm trying to tell you is, Anybody who actually follows the good advice I've just given you, no matter what storm comes in your life, you will be able to stand. Whereas if you don't, sorry, there is no other path to success. There is no other path to a solid life. Now this is critical that we really understand that Jesus is trying to offer us to become the kind of person he is, that perhaps maybe if something really horrible was happening to us by somebody else, our initial response wouldn't be, you just wait, you're going to get it someday, or something. But it might be, oh, Father, forgive them. Oh, you say, well, that's Jesus. Well, what about his apprentice, Stephen? I mean, can you just imagine what it would be like? Honestly, I can't. I don't want to. I don't like being hit with one stone, let alone enough stones to kill me. Do not lay this sin against their charge. Now, I want to say that that takes a strength of character that I don't have. But I have to believe that Jesus can help me get it. If I actually pattern my life after him and learn how to do that. And that's what we're going to some, somewhat talk about. Okay, so we still have a few minutes. Good. Um, John the Baptist's first sentence in public ministry. Anybody happen, just happen to know what it is? I'll give you a clue. It's in, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Just in case you just want to know. So what? what? Repent. Repent. Okay, that's the first word. For the kingdom of heaven is right here. It's available. It's accessible. It's right now. It's right, it's right here. I'm, it's, it's here. John the Baptist says, repent. Does anybody happen to know what the first sentence out of Jesus' mouth was in public ministry recorded by Matthew? Exactly the same sentence. 
Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Very interesting. Now, maybe that would be a significant sentence. Now, repent, we all think we know what repent means, by the way. There's not anybody in here doesn't think they know what repent means. And maybe most of you are right, but I'm going to tell you what it means, and then you, I know you'll be right. <laughs> it's not because I know. It's because, you know, I know because I've been taught. I didn't invent it. It's not like this is John's knowledge. No, this is just the way it is. But here's what repent means. It's actually uh, two Greek words put together. It's a conjunction. It's not a conjunction. It's a compound word. The, it, the Greek word meta, which means change. Like metamorphosis is a change of form, you know? Meta means change. Noeo, meta noeo, mueo is your mind. It means you need to rethink your thinking. That's what it means. Now, we think it means groveling with guilt or something like that, and of course, that could be. Sometimes rethinking our thinking would cause us to have significant remorse for the way we've been living. I don't disagree with that. But the actual meaning of the word means to change your mind about everything. Change your mind about the nature of reality. In fact, that's what Jesus and John the Baptist both say to change your mind about. They say change your mind about what's real, that metaphysics, that ontology, that what's being, because the kingdom of heaven is actually accessible right now. That realm where things happen because God has the say over them and he has not you know, delegated that authority to someone else, that, that is available. You can actually walk in the kingdom right now. That's their message. It's very interesting. Some of you will be perhaps surprised about this. I'm not trying to create anything new. Just take your Bible and do a word search in the Gospels on the word, or in the whole New Testament, on the word gospel itself. And you'll find out that in the vast majority of cases, it's, always, it's talking about the gospel of the kingdom. You'll find out. Just try it. This was the good news of Jesus. He says, I'm bringing you good news. The kingdom of heaven is accessible. It's available. And you can learn to walk in the, the realm, in that kingdom. You can, in fact, he says, I can even give you authority in the kingdom. Kingdom is a place with authority. That's the nature of a kingdom. That's what it means. I have a kingdom. You have a kingdom. You have a kingdom. Everybody has a kingdom. Jesus has a kingdom, right? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Remember? He has a kingdom. He is the king. I'm just a sub-king. But that's happy to be. In fact, Remember the centurion? Jesus says, there's nobody in Israel that gets it like this guy. Centurion sends a messenger to Jesus and says, my child is, uh, I got a servant at home actually who's sick. And uh, Jesus says, um, oh, I'll come take care of that. And the centurion sends back a message and says, oh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have to do that. He says, I, I know the way the world works. He said, now listen, this is so important. Here's this Gentile this Roman soldier, and he says, I know the way the world works. I'm a man under authority, and I have soldiers under me. This is kingdom language. And all you then would have to do, Jesus, is just speak. Because when I tell my soldiers what to do, they do it. All you have to do is speak, and this illness will go away. You're in command. And Jesus jaw dropped. 
nobody in Israel gets it like this guy. This is the nature of a kingdom. We really have to believe that Jesus has authority. And by the way, what he's trying to do with us is develop us into the kind of person that he could trust to give us anything we asked. He can't trust me to give me everything I ask. I'd soon be asking for things that I probably shouldn't have. I, I mean, think about it for a minute. What if you could really get anything you ask, not just once, but all the time? That's what Jesus would like to develop me into, the kind of person that he could trust to give me anything I ask. It doesn't mean he never gives me anything, even, you know, all the time he gives me things. I'm not saying he doesn't. He does do that, but that's what he's really trying to do, is develop persons into the kind of persons that he can trust with his kingdom. You think about the parable of the, of the vineyard. Think about all the various parables of the talents and that sort of thing. What is Jesus trying to do? He's trying to say, listen, if you be trustful, trustworthy in these things, then I can put you in charge of these things. It's kingdom language. It's authority. Do we want to become the kind of persons that Jesus is that can manage everything he gives us in our life for his benefit uh, no matter whether it's good or bad. Well, the kingdom is available, and I'm saying this is an incredible privilege to be kids of the king, and then also an incredible mission. We're actually going to start the Sermon on the Mount. Now, it's time, I guess. I'm not going to start with the Beatitudes just be basically for the sake of time. I'm going to tell you that you ought to consider that the Beatitudes basically say this. It doesn't matter how spiritually bankrupt you are, you can become a significant person in the kingdom. Blessed are the spiritually destitute, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Anyway, that's just basically what it's saying. We will go on. Jesus says, to you guys. He's saying this to you guys. He's saying to the people just sitting on the hillside. He's saying it to me. He said, you're the hope of the world. These people are just flabbergasted. Way more even than we would be. But he's saying, you're the hope of the world. You're the hope of the world. He, I don't know if he's walking among them and saying that like that. It wouldn't surprise me at all. But he's looking right at people and saying, you're the hope of the world. And people are saying, you've you, you got to be kidding. Now these are commoners. These are outcasts. They're spiritually destitute. They're people that have heard there's something going on, but they're just the average Joe and Jill coming to hear uh, Jesus speak. And he's looking at them and he's saying, you're the hope of the world. Now, we don't recognize that's what he's saying because we're so used to the language. You're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. But what he's really saying, if you don't, if you don't do your job, it's not going to get done. If you don't fulfill your role as the hope of the world, it's not going to happen. Remember, remember, how can it be salted if, it's not, if, you don't get, if you don't stay salty? How can it be lit if you put a, a bushel over the lamp and that sort of That's what he's saying. They recognize it. I think their jaws are dropping, and they're looking around in confusion and saying, what does this guy think about? You know, I don't know why. Because all the religious experts of the day had told them they had nothing to contribute. And they were the hope of the world. And you're saying, well, I thought Jesus was the hope of the world. He is. But guess what? He's the one who said you are. For example, the light of the world. I am the light of the world. 
You are the light of the world, you see. Because we're to be apprentices of Jesus, mediating his life to everybody around us. Streams of living water flowing out of us. As we take in his life, we give his life. We, it is to his Father's glory that we bear much fruit, that we become spitting images of him. As Paul says in Ephesians 5, 1, be imitators of God then as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. That's our mission. So here he's saying to these people shocking things like the kingdom of heaven is accessible to you, even the spiritually destitute. And then he's saying, oh, by the way, and you're the hope of the world. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to get done. Salt can lose its saltiness, and then how's it going to be salted? And they're thinking, wait a minute. What, is this something? What, what, what's going on here? Is this, this, this some new age thinking or something? You know, I mean, I don't know. That's kind of what they're thinking. He says, no, listen. I'm not saying something different than the Old Testament says. That's what he said. I am not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I'm, this isn't something completely new. It's always really been this way. Doesn't mean he wasn't new in a new covenant and all that. I understand that. But that's what he said. I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to show you what it really means. I've come to fulfill them. And I'm going to tell you what it really means. That's the good news. I'm going to show you and I'm going to tell you, and that's what this is about. But he says, I got you, I got you got to know something that your righteousness is going to have to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, if they weren't sitting down before, they are knocked down now. Really. Uh, we can't even really think of it this way very well. But uh, let's say this, this way. Maybe it'll give us a little picture. Your, your righteousness is going to have to be a lot greater than all the missionaries and seminary professors. Now, I, I'm not dissing them. That's not my point. I just want you to see the way they would have received this. That's the kind of news they would have thought he was saying because their perception was that these religious experts were the experts. So they could have been, but they weren't, we know, but that's the way they would have received that message. Like, you got to be kidding me. I don't have any chance whatsoever of being the salt and the light if I've got to be better than them. I mean, how could you be better than the person who counts how many dill seeds are, you know, going into his basket and making sure one-tenth of them goes into the treasury? How, how could you be better than the person who's measuring how many steps they walk on the Sabbath and all the other 300 and some regulations they had added to the law? You know, doing all the fasting that they did every week and all that sort of thing. How could you possibly be better than that? And they had absolutely convinced everybody around them that if anybody ever knew anything about God, it was them. Of course, we don't ever have that problem anymore. Jesus said your righteousness is going to have to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And why is that? Well, we, why, the reason why that is is because for them, it was not about the kind of person they were. 
It was about the kind of stuff they did. It was tying plastic fruit on the outside of the tree, not becoming the kind of tree that produces good fruit. It was about externals. It was about impression management. It was about all sorts of things that we hopefully will get to talk about in the next few days. So how will this happen? Not by following instructions of those considered experts in these things. Now, by the way, there are supposed experts all around. Some of them actually know. And we have to discern how much what they say lines up with what Jesus actually had to say. He's the singular expert. Righteousness exceeds. Not more meticulous now. Not more meticulous about the details of external things, but good trees and dishes, the inside of which have been cleaned, you see. Not just the outside. Not setting aside the essence of the Old Testament instructions, but fulfilling them. I like this line by C.S. Lewis, so I'm putting it in here. People often think of Christian morality as a kind of bargain in which God says, if you keep a lot of rules, I will reward you, and if you don't, I'll do the other thing. That's sort of the Phariseeism, okay? I do not think that's the best way of looking at it. I would much rather say that every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different than it was before. And that's the truth. Righteousness equals rightness. So Jesus said your righteousness is going to have to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. That's a tired word, actually. It's a good word, but tired, because where's, where do you ever hear anybody really saying righteousness other than, you know, in church? And sort of like the word disciple. Very good word, just tired. We don't know what it means anymore. It just means the right thing. Doing the right thing, being right as a person. Just rightness. This is the way the word was used by Plato and others, and it was a common word. Jesus was using it. Paul was using it. It's, uh, it's the path. It's the right way to live. Who is the good person, and how do you become a good person? That's what it's addressing. It's the same kind of thing. Uh, and uh, we've already talked about the rest of that righteousness, peace, and joy. Now, we're not in this alone. Jesus invited us into his yoke. That is, he invited us to partner with him. That's the primary meaning of the word fellowship, by the way, in the New Testament. Fellowship is, you know, not a potluck. It's, uh, it is actually a partnership. People uh, come to you maybe with some brilliant idea, and since you're filthy rich... They say to you, would you like me to partner uh, with, would you like to partner with me in this brainstorm I have that's marvelous and going to change the world forever and that kind of thing. They want to partner with you because they want your resources. They want you to join in. We've been invited in to the fellowship of the Trinity. We've been invited in. It's unbelievable. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And, and surely our fellowship is with Jesus. John talks about it in 1 John. Surely our fellowship is with Jesus and with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. It's unbelievable. We get to walk tandem in that easy yoke with Jesus. We get to partner with him. We get to be apprentices of him and learn how to live life as he would alongside of him, with him always with us. Remember in that great commission I quoted a little bit of before, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. And lo, I am 
with you always. Never going to be gone right to the end of the age. I'm, I'm there with you. It's a partnership with him, and we need to recognize that. Well, uh, this I really like this one, too, from Lewis. The real Son of God is at your side. He is beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as himself. He is beginning, so to speak, to inject his kind of life and thought, his zoe, into you, beginning to turn the tin soldier into a live man. The part of you that does not like it is the part that's still tin. Being yoked with Jesus means living in partnership as apprentices. And so a reminder again of what I had mentioned earlier from Matthew 11. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. I'm told that Jesus was referencing what's called a learner's yoke. And what they would do when they were training oxen or, or mules or something like that to work in a field in a yoke is they would take this strong, experienced ox and yoke it with a young, inexperienced ox. And they would rig the yoke in such a way that it was really the strong, experienced ox doing the work or the lion's share of the work. And the learner ox was there primarily to learn how to respond to the master's commands, and do the work like the experienced ox did it. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is, and my burden is light. But it still have to yoke up with him, you know? You still can't beat the ox that's kicking against the goads, as uh, Jesus said to Paul uh, in the Damascus uh, Road experience. So disciple itself, I like this from Eugene Peterson, I like it a lot, really helping us understand what the word disciple means now. Uh, Mathetes says we are people who spend our lives apprenticed to our master, Jesus Christ. We are in a growing learning relationship always. A disciple is a learner, not in the academic setting of a schoolroom, rather at the work site of a craftsman. We do not acquire information about God, but skills of faith. Skills of faith. Actually learn how to do it. The great omission, says Dallas Willard, not the great omission. The great omission from the great commission is what Jesus really said. What he really said was, now listen, I've been given say over everything in heaven and on earth. So go make apprentices of me, immersing them in the Trinitarian reality, not getting them wet while you're saying somebody's name over them, immersing them in the Trinitarian reality, bringing them into the fellowship of the Trinity, and teaching them to do everything I've taught you to do. That will make real salt and real light. So that's the vision uh, of it. So the question is, will we decide now to apprentice with Jesus? Will we decide now? And I don't know if that's the end. Yes, it is. But I have a question for one, one further question for you based on that last one. And this is a John Ortberg question, actually. I just love the way he says it. I'm going to give him credit for it, though. Are you willing to take responsibility for the person you're becoming? 
Everybody's becoming some kind of a person, you know. Everybody undergoes what we now call spiritual formation. It's just a question, what form does their spirit take? By now we know that you don't get it by some sort of, you know, IV or pill or anything else. I'd like to know if you could get it that way, how much that costs and where I could sign up from. I mean, I'd pull the cart right along with me. That'd be fine. I would, if it were that easy. It's not that way. By the way, I don't know why we would think we would become like Jesus in a different way than he became like Jesus. Who was made perfect or complete through his suffering, who learned obedience, who gained favor with both God and men. He says, now I've done it, I can help you, I know how to do it, let's do it together, do you want to? And so it's a great opportunity, a camp like this, where you're sort of away from other stuff, and it's a great opportunity to make a decision, actually, a decision that says, I actually want to apprentice with Jesus. That's a completely different decision than saying, I want to go to heaven when I die. No, I want to be a student. I want to be an apprentice. I want to sign up with, you know, Jesus, the Ben Carson of how to live life, you know, or, the, or whatever. I could pick names, but uh, I won't pick names. Uh, in terms of this experts in various fields, yes, I want to sign up with Jesus because he knows that it won't always be simple, but I'm going to gradually grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of apprenticing with Jesus. Oh, my goodness. There's nobody else anywhere that knows anything about how to flourish as a human being like he does. And what you're trying to do is just reinstate us, restore us, rehydrate us to the person you had in mind in the beginning. Please help us believe, really believe, that Jesus is the one who knows how to help us with this and then just commit to following him. Thank you for the fact that you are with us in this. We are not doing this on our own. Uh, We couldn't take the first step without you. But you've promised to be here. Your grace is here. Your grace, your energy, your activity is sufficient. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.